Welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast, where today's brightest minds in the medical device industry go to get their most useful and actionable insider knowledge, direct from some of the world's leading medical device experts and companies. Oh my goodness, what a crazy week it has been, folks. If you were uh, sleeping under a rock, you might have missed it. On uh, November the 26th, FDA came out with a an announcement, a press release about changes to the 510K. And the moment that that uh, went live from then until now, and, and probably for the next several days, maybe weeks, there have been hundreds of other articles on the topic from just about every news outlet you could possibly imagine about this quote 510k reform. You know, if you read some of this stuff, you may feel as though the regulatory sky is falling, but folks, that's it's not really the case. If you peel back some of the layers and truly understand what this is all about, you'll come to find out that, you know, there's probably not a whole heck of a lot that's different or changed from this announcement. And to explore this a little bit further, uh, I've invited frequent guests and good friend Mike Drews from Vascular Sciences to explore these 510K changes announced by FDA on this episode of the Global Medical Device Podcast. Hello, and welcome to the Global Medical Device Podcast. I feel like I should have that, that urgent uh, noise that for a new you know, APB type of communication on this one. And I'm, I'm laughing a bit, but uh, you'll see why here in a moment. But with me on the podcast today, uh, I have Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences. Mike, has it been a busy week for you? <laughs> it has been a busy week, John. Maybe you can uh, tell the audience why. <laughs> Uh, you know, uh, and I'll confess to the audience, you and I had a, we recorded a conversation earlier this week. Uh, no sooner than we had finished the conversation, uh, I looked at my email and it was blowing up of all this news. And, and I'm like, holy cow, is the sky falling? What is going on? And, you know, it turns out that there was a new announcement from the FDA that the FDA has taken steps to strengthen the 510K program and, and that sort of thing. So um, I'm guessing uh, after we got off that call the other day, you probably had similar issues or similar phone calls and emails. It, it's been a little crazy. It has been a bit crazy. And, and like you, John, my emails have been coming in frequently and my phone has been ringing off the hook with current customers as well as other medical device companies. as well. and, and for that matter, the popular press sources as well, yeah. calling me and asking me, what the heck does this mean? Some people have said, you know, the sky is falling. But as you and I have talked about before, John, I'm constantly reminded of the old phrase, the more things change, the more they remain the same. <laughs> because uh, as I'm sure we'll get into, you know, there's, there's really not a lot here in spite of what many folks at FDA and other places will tell us. There's really a, a nothing here to me anyway that's new. But anyway, we'll get into that. Yeah, for sure. And folks, I want to give you the disclaimer right away. From the moment that we receive this news to the turnaround and this going live is a pretty quick turnaround. And, you know, all things considered from a podcast perspective on, on our end, we're going to just skim the surface of some things today. This is uh, really the initial reaction uh, from Mike and John on this this announcement that came from FDA. Be sure to listen in uh, for future podcasts where I'm sure we're going to dive deeper. I'm sure as the weeks happen for the rest of this year and probably even into 2019, there's going to be a lot more clarity about what some of these things mean. But the first thing, with that being said, Mike, there was this thing about a 10-year rule that was described 
in the announcement, something to the effect of uh, you know, FDA is going to, going to institute some sort of policy that a 510K cannot use a predicate that is greater than 10 years old. So can you elaborate on that just a little bit? Sure. This is another thing that, much to the chagrin of some of my FDA friends, this is not a new idea. This is, in fact, an idea that a number of people have proposed off and on over the many years. And really, I mean, most of our audience, John, are engineers. Engineers are used to thinking about the root cause of a problem. So before we talk specifically about this 10-year issue, let me put you on the spot a little bit, John. What do you think is the root cause of this 10-year proposal, which you just described, not allowing any medical device companies to use a predicate for a 510K that is more than that was cleared more than 10 years ago? Which, by the way, I have always been adamantly against, and I'll explain why in, in a few minutes. But what do you think is the root cause? What do you think is driving this? That's a, a great question. You know, to me... The, the timing of all this is a little bit auspicious. And, you know, we, you and I talked about the, the Netflix documentary, you know, a, a while back when that came out, I uh, had some you know responses to some of the things that, that were discussed in that documentary. But interestingly, within the past week to 10 days or so, there have been a lot of similar articles and content that have you know, come across my desk, you know, things from everyday news organizations where they're covering stories that, you know, of devices gone bad and this and that and so on and so forth. I, I've seen quite a bit from the EU side of, of the world, uh, similar types of stories where, you know, devices, there's been some issues, you know, from from Australia as well. So to me, you know, if I were to speculate, and I know that's not a good thing to do from a root cause perspective, but it seems to me that this is some form of reaction to some of the, I'll say, negative press of that uh, about regulatory pathways and device clearances and and leveraging older quote older technologies to get pr- products to market that that is my gut reaction well i love your gut reaction i certainly have a lot of respect for you and your in your professional experience but yes i agree with you that all of the stories coming out in the popular press including the netflix but all of the more recent ones are all parts of this but there are still symptoms they're not the real root cause. Let me to use, you know, what my attorney friends like to say, let me lead the witness. Let me give you the answer and then perhaps you can explain because I know you know this, John. All right. Trying to tease it out of you. All right. I would argue that the root cause of most, if not all of what we're talking about here is one of the most significant challenges with the 510K and that is predicate creep. How would you describe to the audience, John, if you're familiar with that phrase, what does predicate creep mean? Oh, sure. So, that, that, yeah, and, and thanks for leading me along. I hope I, I end up where you're anticipating. <laughs> but, you know, the whole idea with predicate creep. So let, let's just imagine that I, I bring a device to market uh, under the 510K pathway and, you know, time elapses, changes. I, I start making changes. I, I have to uh, find a new material or a new supplier or tweak this or modify that for a device that's under that was cleared under 510k and in each and every time I go through you know the my decision trees or, or what have you and, and let's just imagine each time that I make one of these small uh, somewhat let's say incremental changes I determine that there's no new submission required from a regulatory perspective that instead I I document this in a letter to file but you know now you know there's a couple years that have elapsed from the time that I got my clearance to my current product 
And if you were to compare that initial 510K device to the one that I have on the market today, they may look different enough to where one might say, hey, are those even the same product? Do they both fall under that same 510K? Well, I think you're awfully close, John. I think what you might be describing is more along the lines of change creep as opposed to predicate creep, but maybe I just misunderstood. So let me offer the audience my sort of the way I like to to explain predicate creep. So let's say we bring a device onto the market today and we compare it to a device that was brought onto the market two years ago. The changes between our device and the predicate over that short two-year period of time are not significant. And therefore, we're able to bring it onto the market as a 510K. When we look at the device that was brought onto the market two years ago, it was brought, it was brought to the market by comparing it to what was on the market, say, two or three years before that. Once again, the changes over that short incremental period of time are insignificant and a 510K is justified. When you start to now add these changes up collectively over the nearly 45 years that we've been playing this game since the 510K was created in 1976, even those small incremental changes, when they're considered individually over a short period of time, they don't seem to be significant. But when we add them up over the you know four plus decades that we've been doing this, those changes become significant. And that, I think, is the root cause. This is exactly why the Institute of Medicine, about a half a dozen years ago, said to the FDA, we should throw away the entire 510K. As I've said many times publicly, and I think you and I have talked about this, John, I was adamantly against that. I think that the the 510K is a pretty good program. It's not a perfect program. It's a pretty good program, and we should definitely not throw it away because that would be like throwing the baby out with the bathwater. Yeah. But we definitely need to talk about making some improvements, and one possible solution to the predicate creep problem that people have been talking about for a long time, and again, it's just personally frustrating to me when people announce these things as if they were a new idea, because it's not, is to put a time limitation on the predicate selection that we can use. In other words, as you know, John, the regulation says that in order to have a successful 510K, we have to have a predicate. The regulation does not say how recent or how old that predicate needs to be. And for what it's worth, I've maintained publicly, you know, for my professional career, the regulation should not say that. It should be up to me as a as a medical device professional to be able to decide which predicate would be the best for me to use in my particular situation, whether it's from one year ago, 10 years ago, or 40 years ago, it makes no difference. But I, behind my decision, I stand by the fact that we should be responsible for our decisions. And it turns out, if it turns out that there are problems later, we need to be responsible and we need to um, to address them. Does that make sense, John? It does. And, and what I find interesting about this change that's being talked about is, you know, in, in, in the FDA report, as well as in a lot of the other uh, general press articles on the topic, it does mention that of five, the 510Ks, 20% of them reference a predicate that's greater than 10 years old. So it's like this is a, a solution to the 20% <laughs> challenge, not the, the other way. And I've, I've, I guess I've always kind of been a, a fan of let's, let's deal with the 80-20, not the 20-80. I, I don't know if you have any thoughts to that. 
No, well, I think that's a good point. That's that's an important statistic, putting things in context for the benefit of the audience. Uh, FDA cleared about 3,200 devices last year under the 510K. That was a little over 80% of all devices coming to market. So this is another reason why this is generating so much press. And as you just mentioned, about 20% of those were cleared by comparing their device to a predicate that was on the market market more than 10 years ago. So if you do the arithmetic, that's about 650 devices that were cleared using those old predicates. Now, the details of this are still a bit sketchy, but I've been involved in devices, John, where it would, if we had an absolute requirement, and I know FDA does not have this in mind, but if we have an absolute requirement that you cannot use a predicate more than 10 years ago, there have been devices that I've been in involved with where there has been no new device come onto the market, and it would be impossible even if we wanted to use a device within one decade because there wasn't one. So bottom line, I think another reason why this idea is being proposed is because from a regulatory perspective, it's a very easy solution. If Congress wanted to get involved here, it would be very easy for them to just impose a regulatory requirement, no predicates more than 10 years uh, old. But I think that, uh, let's put it this way, that would be hamstringing me, not just as a regulatory professional, but as a professional biomedical engineer, from making the best recommendation to my particular customer that I can. I don't want that kind of a limitation. Yeah. The other thing that I find interesting about this announcement is that this, quote, new approach is being tagged as the, quote, safety and performance-based pathway. I know you have a reaction to that. <laughs> well, listen, it's a very admirable goal. And let's, you know, let's, let's be honest here. As, we, as you and I have acknowledged many, many times, FDA has a very important job to do. And, you know, as I've said before in our conversations, physicians can kill patients one at a time, but an FDA reviewer can kill patients thousands at a time. And that's a perspective that none of us in the industry should ever forget. But on the other hand, I would like to think that every medical device pathway to market, and for that matter, every drug and biologic and combination product and everything else pathway to market would be the same thing. So I don't think there's anything unique here about the 510K in that regard. Yeah, I mean, and, and, and folks, I mean, if you've been paying attention to what's been happening at FDA in the past, let's call it six months or so, uh, maybe well, let's just say a calendar year 2018-ish, give or take. And Mike and I have talked about a lot of these things. There have been a lot of movements, let's say, on alternative to 510K pathways and, and more weight put into the abbreviated uh, 510K pathway. And just you know, a few weeks back, uh, some more news about the special 510K pathway and that sort of thing. So this isn't a huge, and to Mike's earlier point, and this isn't, there's nothing really new here. So this isn't super surprising. But at the same time, you know, I, um, one of my colleagues was sharing with me that he came across something that said, this is the most significant change in the FDA and and, and this generation or something like that. And, I'm not, and it's a head scratcher for me. I, I haven't, I've read a lot of the content. I haven't read all the content, but I haven't read anything that's like, wow, that's, that's so revolutionary. Uh, I don't know. Maybe. Well, first of all, John, I think one thing that's important to point out for our audience is that at least as of when you and I are having this conversation today, nothing has changed in terms of the regulation. In other words, Congress has not weighed in on this yet. FDA can propose whatever, quite frankly, they want to propose, and they can implement whatever they want via guidance. 
But let's all remember Regulatory 101, guidance is only guidance. It's not regulation. Unless and until Congress does come in and change the regulation, and I'm not suggesting that they should, certainly not with regard to the 10-year limitation. Nothing here is binding. So that's one thing that everybody needs to, to remember, and that this is all talk. This is all hearsay, as the lawyers would call it. Um, but nonetheless, it's good to have this conversation. And one other point I thought I would bring up, John, a lot of the justification that we're seeing from FDA is to, you know, making these changes or at least proposing these changes is that FDA, to their credit, they want to encourage manufacturers to develop newer and better technologies than what we currently have. And listen, as a biomedical engineer, I'm 100% in favor of that. But is it just me, John, or is it somehow an oxymoron to put better better <laughs> devices in the same context, in the same sentence as a 510K? I, I love this quote how- from, the, from the press release, and this is verbatim, quote, the most impactful way that we can promote innovation and improve safety in the 510K program is to drive innovators toward reliance on more modern predicate devices or objective performance criteria when they seek to bring new devices to patients. I mean, it does seem like an oxymoron, right? And I hope for the benefit of our audience, especially those in this audience that don't have as much of a historical perspective as John and I, I hope that you all appreciate not, our not-so-subtle use of humor here, because these are very important issues for all of us, not just in this industry, but in society to be talking about. And John, I'll just remind you of what somebody, uh, a very good friend of mine, said in one of my favorite YouTube videos, John Spear, in his video <laughs> compare, uh, to dis- describing the 510K, and he was absolutely brilliant in using ketchup and mustard and basically bringing ketchup onto the market by comparing it to mustard. And one of the most important points you made in that video is you want to say that it's basically the same. You do not want to say that it's better. And this is absolutely not a new issue, John. This is something that the medical device industry has been struggling with since the 510K was created in 1976. And basically what I mean by that is from a regulatory perspective, when you take your device to the to the FDA as a 510K, you absolutely do not want to say that your device is better. You want to say that it's the same. And yet when you get your device on the market, your marketing people don't want to say that it's the same. They want to say that it's better. So how can something be the same and yet better at the same time? I have absolutely no idea, John. But I don't know either. But the dance that we've been playing since the 510K was created in 1976. Yeah. These are the kinds of discussions that we need to be having with FDA and within industry, not this kind of you know simple-minded solutions of limiting things to 10, to 10 years. You know, you and I were talking the other day, and, and it's not – it's somewhat, I think it's somewhat related to this topic, but it actually was a conversation that, that you and I had had prior to this press release. And you were sharing a story. You had, a, had done a pre-submission uh, where you were, I think you were proposing a 510K path, if I remember correctly. And one of the, the FDA reviewers of the pre-submission had pointed out that there was some, some new or different risk uh, with your uh, proposed device that would basically eliminate the 510K pathway. Do you want to elaborate on that a little bit and then maybe connect some dots on how that might be related to this announcement? 
Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, John. Thanks for, for asking me to chime in. And by the way, this is a, a story that I've shared now with virtually all of the companies that I've talked to since the last uh, month or so when this has happened. In a nutshell, the regulation since 1976 when it comes to the 510K and risk has always said that if your new device creates any new risks that are not in the predicate or if it's an increase in the risk, in other words, greater than an existing risk or a known risk compared to the predicate, that would, by definition, kick you out of the 510K universe. However, I can tell you, John, that that regulation has never been enforced, literally, in the 40-plus years the 510K has been around. Because if it was, how can you possibly explain the fact that the the number of de novos coming through the FDA are absolutely minuscule compared to the number of 510Ks. I would challenge anybody in our audience or even at FDA for them to bring up a device that was brought onto the market in the past that did not have some new risk that was not present in the predicate device, and yet it was still brought onto the market as a 510K. I challenge anybody in the industry or FDA, I can, you know, as a professional biomedical engineer with a little bit of thinking, and keep in mind, John, as I've said before, I happen to be a subject matter expert in FDA for FDA in a few areas, including risk. I'm very confident, it sounds like a bold statement, and it is, but I'm very confident that I could come up with some new risk, um, and yet it was still brought onto the market as a 510K. So the question, the, the experience that you alluded to was a pre-sub, you know, that I had about a month ago. Obviously, I don't want to get into the details of it, but at least I have now one data point that FDA is trying to raise the bar and encouraging the company to do a de novo. Now, to be fair, I encouraged the, the company to do a de novo before we did the pre-sub because, as you know, John, I'm a big fan of the de novo, but the company wanted to at least give the 510K a shot, and so that's what we did. The question is, is this the beginning of a new trend? And like of all of this uh, chatter that we're hearing, you know, about the 510K, I would not at all be surprised if this is one of the first data points that ultimately can uh, constitute a new trend. And if that's the case, and I said this to somebody just in a in a conference call the, or earlier today with one of my existing customers, don't be afraid, don't be uh, surprised if we start to see a, a significant increase in de novos in the future. I think uh, part of the motivation for FDA to do that is because that would be a more legitimate explanation of encouraging companies to develop new and novel devices. Because let's be honest, John, I mean, to say that a 510K device is new and novel, that's just, um, I'm sorry, that just to me doesn't make any sense. Uh, Yeah, I echo that as well. Folks, I want to remind you, I'm talking to Mike Drews with Vascular Sciences, and uh, we're uh, skimming the surface today on the recent uh, press release from uh, FDA about changes to the 510K program. And with that in mind, um, Mike is doing a webinar uh, with Greenlight Guru on December the 6th at 1 p.m. Eastern time. And, And the topic is very, very relevant to what we're going through or what we're talking about today. And that the topic of the webinar is the 510K and substantial equivalence. Why do so many get it wrong? Um, so be sure to, to, we'll include a link to the to sign up for that, but you can also go to www.greenlight.guru to the webinar page to sign up for this as well. It's absolutely free. It's, it's information that will help you as a regulatory professional. But Mike, I mean, it, it is interesting that if 
if we do think about that, I mean, is I mean, it's speculation, of course. Is this a precursor uh, for things to come? Is this you know a an indicator that that maybe there will be more things that now don't qualify for 510k that are going to be pushed for that de novo pathway? And there, you know, we've we've talked about that before. There are pros and cons. There are times when that makes sense and that sort of thing. And I, I know we're not going to get into that today. And but you know, folks, it could be an an early indicator and. Mike, I recall when you and I were chatting the other day, we we were talking about trends. You know, it's easy to spot the trend after something has happened 10 or 15 times. It, it may not be as uh, easy to identify a trend with a single data point or two. So do you want to elaborate on that in any way? Well, here's how I would uh, sort of wrap this up as we approach the end of today's discussion. And believe me, I think this is going to be just a continuation of what will will be many in our discussions in the future, not just between you and I, but I hope, you know, with a broader audience. Let me be crystal clear. As I said earlier, and I mean this sincerely, the 510K is a, perf- is, is a pretty good program, but it is no, by no means a perfect program. And anybody that's in our industry that um, says that the 510K should not be changed, um, with all due respect, it's just not doing a service to our to our industry. We need to have discussions like this on how to make improvements. I personally, as I said, am not in favor of a 10-year limitation on predicates, but I am strongly in favor of having discussions on how to to make other improvements in, in the program to identify what I think is one of the most significant challenges to the 510K, and in, that is the problem of predicate creep. But more broadly, if FDA is genuinely interested in encouraging companies to um, not come out with more and more me-toos, but instead to come out with new and novel kinds of technologies, I don't think tweaking the 510K is the way to do it. I think what we need to be talking about, and John, obviously, we have a lot of people in industry that listen to our podcast, but I'm also proud to say that I have a number of my FDA friends that also listen to some of our podcasts, although I'm sure none of them would ever admit to that publicly. Um, But I'm going to say this for my FDA friends. uh, We need to do more to encourage medical device companies to not be so afraid of pursuing a de novo. And I'll share with you what one of the people at this particular pre-sub meeting said. That person said, the amount of work at the end of the day that goes into a 510K or a de novo in terms of benchtop testing, clinical testing, if there is any, and so on, is the same, 510K versus de novo. That person said, what difference does it make? And I said in response, welcome to my world. (laughs) Because there are still an awful lot of people in our industry who will assume that because they do a a de novo, it is by definition more work than a 510K. Sometimes that's the case, but oftentimes it's not. So I think that we need to be uh, educating people uh, on truly what the advantages and disadvantages are so that we can all make the best decision that we can given the circumstances that we're in at that time. I don't know if this makes any sense to you or your audience, John, but that's, um, I'm trying to put a, a positive spin on all no. of this negative press like this, like the sky, like the sky is falling. I don't think yeah. the sky is falling. I, I don't, I don't think so either. I, I agree with you wholeheartedly. And, and folks, as we do wrap up this conversation, there is a ton of information. Uh, uh, I'll use the word information loosely here. There are t- maybe better stated. There are a ton of articles on this topic 
more come out each and every day. And I would expect now for the next probably week or so, there will be additional articles and content. My advice to you is to try to get to the facts. Uh, As Mike led this conversation today, there probably really isn't anything dramatically new in this announcement. You know, you can peel back the layers, you can dive into the details, but reader beware, you can do this. I mean, I... I haven't read the, the fraction of the articles that I've bookmarked because there are so many of them. And but the more you read them, then you know it's just it's redundant. It's, it's saying the same thing. It's putting you know different spins on it. But but try to get to the facts as best as you possibly can. And to Mike's point, and, and what we talked about a moment ago, safety and performance. Those are that's that's bread and butter for any medical device. You should absolutely one hundred percent be focused on that regardless of that regulatory pathway. The regulatory pathway, from my way of looking at it, is sort of a means to an end. And what I mean to that means to get your product to market. And, you know, it, it's sort of semantics. If if you if uh, I, I might be so bold to say, uh, if you want to think about whether it's a de novo or a 510k or a PMA, you know, the the work, the effort that's required, it's still there. It doesn't you know, the regulatory piece is, is somewhat somewhat irrelevant at the end of the day. I mean, I know that's kind of a bold statement. Some some might be rolling over, jumping up and down, saying what I just said is crazy. But folks, you still you still got to do the work. You still got to be able to demonstrate safety and efficacy of your product. Absolutely correct, John. And the very last thing that I would just offer uh, for you and your audience in terms of historical perspective, because I know that we have a lot of folks that listen to us that are relatively new to this industry. So these, you know, when John and I talk about the fact that there's really nothing, to, nothing new here that these issues um, have been talked about for a long time, I'm not talking just simply about the the discussions in the articles coming out in the last weeks or even months or even the last few years. Some of these articles go back decades. As a matter of fact, my one of my favorite articles, John, it's uh, it was an article published in Popular Mechanics magazine called Danger in the Hospital. It was one of the first articles to start highlighting some of the problems with uh, medical devices. Any guesses to when that article was published, John? You know, the fact that you teed it up that way would suggest that it, it might have been before I was born, but I don't know. <laughs> well, I'm not sure about that, but uh, the, so so the 510K was created in 1976 when the um, FDA first started regulating medical device. This particular article, and we can post a link to it from the website if you'd like, was published in, par- in Popular Mechanics magazine in February 1971. Five years before the 510K was even yeah. created, people were talking about these problems. Yeah. This is absolutely nothing new here. Yeah. Something yeah. to think about. Yeah, and folks, you know, hear what Mike is saying about the 510K process. I mean, there there are there have been cries for reform on the 510K for a long time. Ever since it was released, there's been cries for the 510K. And yeah, Mike's right. It's not a perfect process. And and if perfect process were the objective, uh, there would never be one uh, because there's no such thing. It's all about continuous process improvement you know, to, to put my quality hat on for a moment. So, so embrace the pathway, understand the pathway, you know, it's a game of regulatory uh, poker uh, to, to borrow a concept that Mike uses, uh, get your ducks in a row, uh, you know, leverage uh, experts in this field. That's why, you know, I talk so often with Mike Drews because, you know, he is truly 
the the expert, well, an, an expert, I guess there might be more than one, but is one of the, the world-renowned experts as far as regulatory strategy for medical devices. And folks look him up, he's a, with vascular sciences. And of course, as I mentioned a moment ago, safety and performance and efficacy, those are, those are key things for any medical product, regardless of pathway. That means that you have to have solid foundation from a design control perspective, that you have to have a solid foundation for risk, and that when you go to market, you're going to need a solid foundation for your quality management system. Frankly, there's nothing better than the Greenlight Guru eQMS software platform to help you with that. It's designed specifically for the medical device industry by medical device professionals. So I would encourage you to go to www.greenlight.guru to learn more. And... You have been listening to the Global Medical Device Podcast.